Hello and welcome back to Filmonomics at Slated. My name is Colin Brown and I'm your host for this podcast series that deconstructs the film business through the insights and experiences of seasoned filmmakers, financiers and facilitators. The hope is that these interviews don't just help inform the choices you make on the current film project that may be occupying your creative energies and anxieties. We hope they also serve on the longer journey ahead as a storytelling professional. How do you, in fact, carve out a self-sustaining career in independent filmmaking? Well, that's the question facing our industry these days. And it was one that was very much at the recurring core of the conversation I had with my latest podcast guest, Marina Zenovich. As an award-winning documentary filmmaker, Marina has examined everything on screen from the controversial life of one of America's most influential comedians in Richard Pryor, Omit the Logic, to the damaging accusations of sexual misconduct against the Duke University lacrosse team in a film for ESPN's 30 for 30 series called Fantastic Lies. Her most recent film, Water and Power, a California heist, plunged into the murky groundwaters of the next big environmental battleground by investigating the backroom deals that have exploited California's water system. But it is her two films about Roman Polanski and his ongoing legal battles that really put Marina on the industry map. The first of these, Roman Polanski Wanted and Desired, was universally praised for its scrupulous avoidance of glib conclusions and easy moralizing. Acquired by HBO at the 2008 Sundance Film Festival, the film was invited to play at that year's Cannes Film Festival too, and went on to win coveted primetime Emmys for both directing and writing. Just recently, it was named by Hollywood director Brett Ratner as being among his very favorite movies of the 21st century in a New York Times feature about cinema's new classics. Marina's 2013 follow-up film, Roman Polanski, Odd Man Out, was shown at both the Toronto and New York film festivals that year and acquired by Showtime. It was also made with a major financial assist from the Slated platform, a story we'll go into a little bit more later in this podcast. Those Polanski films established Marina as a go-to filmmaker when it comes to making compelling legal documentaries and portraits of flawed, complicated personalities. But, and this is what makes her comments so illuminating, even with her reputation for bringing clarity and balance to ambiguous people and moments in history, Marina still faces the same obstacles common to so many documentarians. She still has to dig deep to find people willing to talk on screen, and to do so in such a way that they bring the subject to vivid life. Then it's very hard to try to get people to open up. Although I trained as an actor, and so I, I'm a very good listener, and I think that most people aren't used to people listening, so that when people actually listen, they open up. But it's still hard to just push and push and try to get people to share, you know? It's hit or miss, and it's hard. And it makes me want to direct fiction, which has its own problems, but at least then people are willing to go there. Before becoming a documentary filmmaker, Marina was indeed an actress. She appeared on stage as well as in several films, including Robert Altman's The Player, in which she has an uncredited role as a studio executive. Her first documentary as a filmmaker was also about the film industry. Independence Day, the ultimate insider's look at the crazy world of Sundance, was an hour-long behind-the-scenes look at the independent film business through the prism of the Sundance Film Festival. As Marina notes now, some of the business dependency issues confronted in that 1997 snapshot of the indie world are still at the forefront a full 20 years later. Maybe even more so. For me, I'm at a point 
point where you kind of come back to what is an independent filmmaker? What is an indie filmmaker? My first movie, Independence Day, the last shot is be independent in big, bold letters. And it's kind of like you have a career. You're the old saying, you're only as good as your last film. I mean, you keep trying to keep the work consistently good. What is that? That is engaging. What is that? That is people wanting to keep watching, which appears to be harder and harder in this day of phones and, and, oh, I'll just Google that while I'm watching it to learn more about it. A perfect example to me of what I'm kind of dealing with is, you know, there's a project that I'm interested in and I was put up for and I'm on the list. You know, there was a time when I wasn't on the list. I'm not on all the lists, but I'm on some of the lists. Maybe they have some, let's throw a token woman in there, right? But what's interesting for me where I am, I'm in the middle of one project. I'm looking to see what my next project will be. With that film in particular, I found out that they met with someone else, but they didn't meet with me because that person is more compelling for whatever reason at this exact moment in time. Are they the right person? Maybe, maybe not. Am I? Maybe, maybe not. But what's interesting when you get to a point in your career where that happens is you realize the way to kind of feel in control of what you're doing is not waiting for people to put you on lists. It's going back to what I started out as, as, which is an indie filmmaker, which is creating my own opportunities, which is very hard. It gets easier as you have a track record. And that's the greatest thing I have going for me is a track record. So I don't have to necessarily pitch. People can see my work and see what I've done. But it's like the way to have some sort of control in a business where you don't have a lot of control is to try to create opportunities for yourself. So if I don't get in the door, the way I can get myself off the ledge is by saying, you know what? The only way this has ever really worked for me is when I've come up with my ideas myself. The problem is, how do you continue to make a living doing that? If you have good instincts, you can do it every kind of once in a while, but it's hard to make a living. One way that filmmakers have tried to meet this challenge of career sustainability is to try to cultivate some kind of brand identity for themselves. Becoming known for the consistency of their work, both thematically and artistically, not only helps in building an ongoing relationship with audiences, but ought to make them more quantifiable in the eyes of prospective financiers. But branding can also be a double-edged sword, particularly if you let the marketplace define your brand for you. Artists are generally loath to be pinned down to any one type of work, much as they like to get regular paying gigs. I think we all get pigeonholed into what we do. The first person who ever really talked about branding that I remember was Ted Hope, about having followers and all that stuff. He was very ahead of the curve and it made no sense to me. And I should have listened and I'd have, you know, more Twitter followers than I do because I finally joined and I don't even really know how to do it. But I tried. Somebody wrote to me on Twitter asking me for an interview and I had to call my friend and I don't care if you put this on there. I had to call my friend to say, how do I respond to someone? And then she called me a few days ago and said, Oh, the funniest thing happened. Remember the girl that tweeted to you and you asked me how to tweet back to her. I met her at a dinner party. 
I applaud all those people who who can do all that stuff. I mean, that is the the kind of new way. But branding is something that I guess I have a brand. But the thing is, I would never talk about my brand. You know, my husband pointed out to me, you make films about difficult men. Like, it's not like I set out to make films about difficult men, intriguing men. It was never a goal. It's just something that your instincts take you there, you know? And then suddenly you've, you know, lucked out and you have a career. And, oh, I guess I make films about... You know, but that doesn't mean that you can't make films about something else. If you're fortunate as a filmmaker, others can see unexpected connections between your work and their own project ambitions. And this is exactly what happened to Marina on Water and Power, California Heist. Made for National Geographic, it probes the highly charged issue of public water rights that begins with wondering how some of California's mega farmers managed to record profits during a period of historic drought and water rationing. On paper, this was far removed from the character-driven films with which Marina had been associated, but executive producer Alex Gibney made that imaginative leap to Roman Polanski himself. That is definitely an issue film. It was pitched to me as Chinatown, the documentary, and that's a perfect example of someone's take that someone being Alex and Jigsaw. And it is that, and I could have found that. But if it wasn't pitched to me in that way, I don't know if I would have responded the way I did. I mean, I was I was in because of the intrigue. You know, I'm always looking for kind of intrigue and underbelly of what is really going on. I'm always looking to make films about all those things you can't get access to. But I mean, when I made uh, Roman Polanski, Odd Man Out. You know, I was in Switzerland trying to talk to people. No one would talk to me. I mean, what do you do when no one talks to you? <laughs> There's only so much you can do. I mean, you find creative ways to get around it, but it gets a little frustrating kind of film after film if no one wants to talk to you. I mean, that's why, you know, you see something like Wiener. Um, I've been trying to make a film about Jerry Brown for years. And he said yes. And then he said no. And, you know, I got him in the water film. But I wanted to do a film following Jerry Brown in office. It's not Wiener. Wiener had a whole other subplot, if you will. But I saw Wiener and, and it's just like, oh, my God, it's all access. With documentaries, it's all access. And sometimes you get it and sometimes you don't. And if you get it and you know what you're doing, you have a film like Wiener. Wiener, for those not familiar with that film, is a fly-in-the-wall documentary that follows Anthony Wiener's train wreck of a bid to become New York City's mayor. The central figure is almost Shakespearean in his tragic flaws. And a reminder that so many of the best documentaries, despite the popular belief that they revolve just around causes, are driven by characters rather than ideas. This is true even of issue-driven films such as Water and Power. Marina's first instinct as a storyteller was indeed to find her characters. Oh, totally. I mean, always looking for someone to follow, you know, without being contrived. So we found a journalist who's writing a book. You know, I'm from the Central Valley, which is part of the reason I was also right for the film. And he and I went to the same high school. Or He knew my dad. I knew his little brother. He was perfect. So not only do you have to find the character, but then you have to, you know, put them in front of a camera. And if they're compelling, they are. If they're shy, they are. It, this is another thing I'm dealing with is kind of trying to get 
performances, for lack of a better word, out of regular people. What I came up against in the water film, which is really interesting, was my producer, Ted Guessing, was more of a news person, whereas I see myself as more of an emotion person where I'm always looking for the emotion, whether it's sadness or humor or irony or anything. I'm trying to get performance out of someone. And we were interviewing a a gentleman who didn't make it into the film. And in the middle of the interview where the guy is like crying and, you know, he's lost his water and there's so much going on and it's amazing. And, And Ted says to me, I have to talk to you we have to go outside. And I'm like, what? Why are you breaking this up? Why are you stopping this interview? He said, he's getting all his facts wrong. (laughs) And I said, I don't care about the facts. Of course, I have to care about the facts. But in the moment when you're struggling so hard to get someone to be emotional, because a lot of people aren't, and not not to get them to cry, but to get them engaged, to get them in their story. It's, it's hard to find people who are willing to do that. Of course, that ended up on the cutting room floor because the facts were wrong and because the facts need to be right, right? But with Mark Arex, my journalist who we followed, he was a little shy at first. It is like directing actors, but you're directing people and trying to get them to open up. That's what was hard for the water film because I don't really consider myself an issue filmmaker. I make films about people. So we did kind of try to find the most compelling people. And we didn't know who it would be. We didn't know how they would be on camera, but we found the journalist and the young lawyer, Adam Keyes. You know, you you want someone on a mission, someone who's trying to get to something. And that's what you're looking for. I mean, I, I worked for a while on this art series where I followed artists as they were putting up a show. I've ended up kind of in the business of making archival films, but I really yearn to be following someone. There's something in the beauty of kind of like, if someone is open to being followed and sharing what they're going through, coupled with there being a story so that there is a story arc, it's magic. It's magic. And that's kind of what I'm, you know, yearning for. I think in my film, Fantastic Lies, about the Duke lacrosse scandal, you know, it's so funny. While I was making that, it was hell because no one wanted to talk to me. It was, you know, a lot of doors slammed in my face, a lot of time on the phone trying to get people to talk. But once I finally got the parents and got them to open up, it's almost how David Lynch talks about um, TM. It's gold. You're, you're dealing in human emotion, which is gold. There's nothing like it. And that's kind of the, the high that you're chasing when you're making these films to either get people to trust you, which takes a very long time, open up tell their story and put it in the in a bigger story and present it to the people to enjoy. In prospecting for that storytelling gold, I wondered whether Marina knows at the time of actual interviewing that she has struck the emotional mother load, or whether this only becomes apparent later when looking over the footage and realizing perhaps too late that an opportunity had been lost. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's like, oh my God. If you know what it's like when you get it, you know when you're not getting it is what it comes down to. And so you just keep trying. I mean, I did an interview recently where um, (laughs) 
I wasn't getting it. I wasn't getting it. And I spent literally like an hour on page one of the questions because I was trying to have this person paint the picture for me. But people sometimes don't want to open themselves up. Some people are closed down. So you try to find people that are open. I made this short film about Julian Schnabel and I, whatever you could say about Julian, he's open and willing to kind of go places. And it's like, when you find a character like that, you want to make a film about them because it's so compelling. So that's kind of what I do in my spare time is look for those kinds of people, which is, you know, it's hard. Usually it's one thing that'll get someone to start talking. Like this one person, I, I just said, you know, just set the scene for me. I'm, I'm not getting a picture of what it was like. I mean, what did you look like? And that kind of opened the world for him. I remember reading an interview with Sidney Pollack and how he got actors to open up. It's like, it's knowing how to say the right thing to get someone to open up is that somebody could be listening to this and say, oh, that's so manipulative. But it's not. It's really trying to find a way to get someone to be open. Because I don't think you make good films when people are shut down. I don't think really you have anything when people are shut down. You certainly don't have good music or anything. Given Marina's acting background and her own desire to see characters open up and reveal themselves on screen, I wondered how close she'd come to directing fiction projects in which you could exert greater storytelling control? Well, I've been attached to direct something for a long time that we that it looks like we might be getting financing for about Norman Mailer and Jack Henry Abbott and the summer uh, in the 80s when Norman Mailer got Jack Abbott out of jail and brought him to New York. So that's something I've been trying to get off the ground for a long time. And, and it's a great script that was written by P.G. Morgan, who I work with all the time. So I, I think part of the reason that's been hard to set up is that it's a period piece and that it's quite dark, but it has great roles for actors. What else would I do? I don't know. Uh, once you become a parent, it's kind of like, you know, things shift and you look for films. I remember reading this when I was younger of people saying, you know, I want to do this for my kids or whatever. But once you have a child and you, you want to enjoy watching film with them, you know, or television, you know, you want to make something for them. And there are so few films that are really right for a certain, everything is just so sophisticated. It is often said that truth is stranger than fiction. 83-year-old Polish filmmaker Roman Polanski is the living embodiment of just that. He has made several of cinema's landmark films, and yet all that screen artistry has been constantly overshadowed by the drama surrounding his personal life. Small wonder then that Marina has felt compelled to keep chronicling Polanski's controversies, even to the point where her filmmaking is now an intertwined part of that very saga. Her second film about Polanski, Odd Man Out, not only details the director's 10-month-long arrest in Switzerland, that came about because of attempts to extradite him to the United States, but also explores her own concern that she may have played a part in Polanski's legal troubles with her first film. But while Polanski's life has yielded several biographies, making more than one film about his legal battles proved unexpectedly difficult for Marina, until several equity investors lined up through Slated allowed her to finish financing her sequel. Slated came on board for the second Polanski film, which was really, really difficult to find money for. 
So Wanted and Desired was financed by a few individuals, and then we sold it to HBO. And CBC was on board at a certain point. And then I was making a short film about how Wanted and Desired reopened Polanski's case. The only reason I even went there was because the film had kind of reopened the case. It's not what I had planned. I couldn't have imagined that it would have happened. I tried to get funding for Odd Man Out and no one wanted to give us money. It was really interesting. And I and I met Stefan Paterno and he was just starting Slated at that point. And that's how Slated got involved. It was just, you know, the right time the right project. And it was great that I was able to find financing that way. I think part of the problem was that we didn't know what the story was. At a certain point in our kind of deck that we were sending out trying to get money to, to fund the film, we had a page that I keep saying I'm going to frame and put in my bathroom, but I have to find it. But it basically had, if what would happen? Like there were three outcomes. Either Roman Polanski would come back and the case would be dismissed. Either he would stay in jail. You know, it's like we didn't know what the end was. So I think no one really, I, I don't know. I don't know if it was the beginning of people not being interested in kind of him as a character. I don't know what, but it was just incredibly hard to find money. And so Slated was a godsend. And we were able to finish the film and, you know, it premiered at Toronto and played at the New York Film Festival and we sold it to Showtime. And they're two very different films. If you told me 20 years ago that I would have spent 10 years making two films about Roman Polanski, I would have said, what? But that's somehow what I ended up doing. How much of those 10 years was looking for money? <laughs> you know, a lot, a lot. But that it almost becomes part of the story. One of the reasons that Marina was unable to pin down her story arc for investors is that this story is still ongoing. Only last month, the victim in Polanski's 40-year-old sexual assault case made her first public legal appearance in the case as she pleaded in a Los Angeles courtroom for an end to the legal proceedings. And even if the judge agrees to drop the warrant for his arrest, another episode in Polanski's life still threatens to haunt him. It's just been revealed that Quentin Tarantino's ninth film as a director will be about the infamous Manson family murders, whose victims include Polanski's wife at the time, Sharon Tate. Is there yet another Marina Polanski documentary in the making here, with another possible ending? Well, do I dare tell you that I'm still filming? <laughs> yes, we are. We are filming. I mean, I kind of can't stop filming because the case keeps going. We've been filming the hearings in Los Angeles and, you know, I'm kind of going to film it until the end. I don't even remember what the endings were. What? He either comes back and goes to jail, he comes back and he's freed, or he never comes back. What happened after my second film was that he tried to make a film in Poland and the Polish government changed hands and they have a lot of uh, conservatives there who decided they wanted to try to extradite him, help extradite him to the U.S. So he fought that. They actually showed Wanted and Desired in the courtroom in Poland, which was something I wish I could have seen, but I got to see pictures of. But anyway, so Slated was 
you know, a godsend for me because I was trying to find money. And I mean, when was that? That was 2011, 12. Yeah. I mean, he got arrested in 2009. I think there's more money now. I think documentaries have gotten more popular, but you still have similar problems in the sense that what is the marketplace? What are people interested in? Let alone, can you make a good film? Which brings us back to the whole issue of sustainability in filmmaking. The global entertainment industrial complex can be seen as its own delicate ecosystem that depends on a diverse root system, not only of creative voices, but also of creative patrons. As Marina noted to the New York Times back in 2013, part of Slated's initial appeal was not just the access it provided to investors, but the potential for refreshing the pool of financiers available to filmmakers like herself deprive independent filmmakers of that renewable source of seed money, and you soon cut off Hollywood's pipeline for new talents and ideas to co-opt for mass market ends. Even the most dedicated artists can only live hand-to-mouth for so long in subsistence mode before their work suffers. It's really how you're able to keep doing good work. I mean, it's exactly what you're talking about. The problem is, like, you have to think of what you're doing next because it takes so long to set it up. So people would say, well, I have one thing in development while I have something in production, while I have something in post-production. And that is kind of the ideal way to do it, but it doesn't necessarily fall that way. Like, for example, I made Polanski 2 and then I made Prior and then I had several things in development and, and nothing really went. And then certain things fell apart. And I found myself kind of what's interesting about those periods when things fall apart is you end up so hungry to do good work because it's such a waste of time. And you know, you have a limited amount of time. I feel like when I got the Duke lacrosse scandal story for ESPN, which wasn't even supposed to go to me, that kind of came to me because someone else didn't want to do it because they did something else. And I was doing something with the producers that fell apart. So they offered it to me. I ended, I was so hungry because I had so many things fall apart that I ended up being kind of the right person at the right time who was able to make like what people call one of the best 30 for 30s. I can't even believe I'm saying that, but people say that. And I'm not even really a sports person, but it turned me into a sports person. But it's just interesting how kind of these things happen. But what you and I are really kind of coming from two different places saying the same thing, which is how do you maintain, sustain a career? And it's not a career making fidget spinners, right? It's a career making interesting, compelling movies that make either people want to finance your next one or people want to hire you. And it's not easy. I was telling my husband last night, it's just like, how do you sustain a career? You know, how you do it is by having another way. It's by either being independently wealthy, which I'm not, by directing commercials, which I'm not. What's so fascinating about it is that I appear successful, right? So who am I to say how hard it is? But it's just interesting to kind of go through each doc person and see how they make it work you know, and all the stories are different. 
That was Marina Zenovich opening up about the never-ending challenges in making a living as a filmmaker, even one as acclaimed and accomplished as she is. Listeners may have noticed that during this truncated edit of our conversation, that word hard comes up at least 14 times, which tells you a little about where the state of film independence still lies, a full two decades on from Marina's first film. Now, some of those hardships, as Marina articulates so well, just come with the territory of being a non-fiction storyteller. It's so often a tough job to lock down privileged, intimate access to the moments, people and footage behind a particular story, and to then shape all that material into a narrative structure that comes complete with engaging characters and a satisfying payoff. It takes a considerable amount of digging and planning and skill to be in a position to capture those lucky breaks. But a good part of the hardship is also systemic. Filmmakers have to contend with a business world that doesn't assess them on their talents alone, or even the excitement to see a particular vision come to life on screen, but rather on a raft of economic considerations, many of which are second-guessed interpretations of the marketplace and what seems to have worked before. The problem here is that the door can close on all but the most in-demand talents, limiting the breadth and depth of what we see. The film world as a whole suffers from this winner-takes-all paradigm. In the natural world, we've come to learn that the healthiest ecosystems are those that remain diverse and productive indefinitely. This is as true, surely, of a long-living forest as it is of a storytelling business world. Unless there are a wide variety of creative seeds, those revenue waterfalls we all talk about will surely dry up, in the same way that California's water supply might also dry up unless it is wrested from the hands of a greedy few. As Marina's latest documentary made abundantly clear, such a precious resource needs to be prudently managed in the plain sight of everyone. Sustenance and sustainability is everything. Well, that's all for me and Filmonomics at Slated for this episode. Tune in for another episode coming very soon that looks at all this from the other side of the negotiating table, the financiers. And please leave a review on our iTunes page. We would like nothing better than constructive feedback from the widest range of voices possible.